Well, good morning. Happy New Year. Good to be with you today. We're starting a new sermon series with our new year. And uh, the sermon series is called The Family of God on Mission. And it's good to be reminded of our identity and our calling as a congregation, as a local church, as we begin a new year. And so uh, taking five weeks here through uh, the month of January and the first week of February to look at this uh, theme of the family of God on mission. There's two primary movements, you might say, of the church as contained within the Great Commission. So when Jesus was here on earth and right before he ascended to go back to the Father, he gave the church some instructions about what we were to be about while he was gone, which was to go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. So there is these, kind of this two-pronged movement in the Great Commission. There's an outward focus, a going outward, and there's also an inward focus, so going out and making disciples, but inward helping people grow and learn to follow in the footsteps of Christ. So there's a, an outward and inward, a making new disciples, a inward helping disciples mature in the faith. There's the proclaiming of the gospel. There's nurturing people in the gospel, a breathing out and a breathing in. And so that's what we want our, our sermon series to focus on today is this idea of this dual kind of focus of the people of God. We're a family, so church as a, a family, as a metaphor for the church, we're a family bonded together by the Spirit of God in the same way that an earthly family is bonded together by a common blood. For the expression, blood is thicker than water. It's true, but the Spirit is thicker than both, right? And like what bonds us together as a family here as a local congregation calvary memorial church is the spirit of god that resides inside each of us making us and constituting us as a family but we're not just a family we're a family on a mission and that makes a difference for how we conceive of our family when you think about perhaps your nuclear family your extended family you have an identity as a family that comes together you may come together for holidays as such as we've done or new year's but you don't often think of your family as having a mission, right? You don't get together as a family and talk about some central mission. Organizations have mission, like what binds an organization together is its common sense of mission. But we're a family that has a mission, right? So we're not just a family that comes together to kind of gaze inwardly and to celebrate our common identity, but we're a family that comes together on a mission. And this has been God's purpose from the very beginning, as he constitutes a people in the world, it's to bring a people together to be a blessing to the world. So a church that focuses on itself, that lets the family metaphor override its identity, becomes healthy and inward and unbalanced, unhealthy, inward and unbalanced. But so too a church that focuses exclusively on a mission, where it's only outwardly, without looking inwardly, that becomes unbalanced as well. So I want us to think of ourselves here as we're kind of launching into 2019, Calvary Memorial Church, who are we, what are we about? We're a family that has a mission. I want us to embrace our identity together as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
but also I want us to embrace this identity as we launch out into the calling that God has placed upon us. We're never going to know the full joy and the power of the Lord among us if we neglect each other. But we're also not going to know the full joy and the power of the Lord among us if we neglect the mission. So we're going to focus this theme that I've just been talking about, we're going to focus this theme through the lens of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. We're going to look at five key passages, one each week, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. That's going to help us understand our identity as a family, and then also what it means for us to be a family on mission. Some of the passages that we look at are going to perhaps speak a bit more to our identity as a family. Some of the passages are going to speak a bit more perhaps to our mission. But in both cases, we want to understand what it means to be a family of God on mission. Five passages and kind of the five themes we're going to look at, each one will focus on a gift that God gives to his people that informs and constitutes our identity and our sense of mission. So here they are. Grace, the power of the family of God on mission. That's today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Peace, the unity of the family of God on mission. That'll be 2, 11 through 20. Love, the beginning and end of the family of God on mission. That'll be from Ephesians 3. One another, the growth of the family of God on mission from Ephesians 4. And then finally, boldness, the task of the family of God on mission from Ephesians 6. So we're looking at these five gifts that God gives to his people that constitutes their identity together as a family and that helps to inform our understanding of our mission. This is a good sermon series, I think, for us, as I've already mentioned, as we begin 2019. Like, what is it that God has called us to be about? What organizes our programming and our identity and our life together? What are we doing together as we meet every Sunday and then throughout the week in common purpose with each other? This is also a great sermon series, perhaps if you're new to Calvary or you're even new to the church in general. You've never perhaps been to a church. You're, you're thinking to yourself, it's 2019 and uh, we should start going to church. And so you've shown up here this morning perhaps, or uh, you're exploring the Christian faith. This would be a great sermon series for you as well over the next five weeks, because it'll help you understand the nature of the Christian faith and what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a part of the church. So encourage, uh, encourage us all to listen intently and to be praying that the Lord would speak, not to just is us individually, and though certainly I think the Lord has some things to say to us individually, but beyond that, to what the Lord has to say to us corporately together as a church. All right, so with that framework in mind, we're going to jump into our text, which has already been read for us this morning, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And we're focusing on this first gift that God gives to his church that helps constitute our identity as a family and that propels us in mission, the gift of grace which is central to our entire understanding of what it means to be a church or to be a Christian. This passage that's been read for us doesn't say everything that there is to say about grace and salvation, but it does emphasize, I think, an often neglected aspect of salvation. And it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, I think because of that reason. It captures just the essence of the gospel in so many profound ways. Each age of the church or context of the church has its own strengths and weaknesses, its own insights and oversights. Uh, and one of the unique weaknesses, I think, of the contemporary church in North America, not just 
germane to any particular denomination, but across uh, the, the, the spectrum in the North American evangelical context is that we often have, I think, a truncated understanding of the nature of grace. That when I say to you, we're saved by grace, for instance, as we've read, like, what, what is contained within that term grace? What do you think of when the term grace is used? I think that many of us operate with something of a truncated understanding of the term grace. And if we undersell or misunderstand the nature of grace, then we're going to find ourselves flailing about both corporately and individually as we seek to live out our identity as the family of God on mission. So I do not want my congregation flailing about. So we're going to try to see if we can't get to the bottom of this term grace. And I think this passage 2, 1 through 10 really unpacks in its fullness the depth of the riches that's contained in God's grace to us. So we're going to work our way through this passage, drawing out a few key insights as it relates to our theme here for the sermon series. The passage has three main movements or sections. We've got the problem, then we've got God's solution, and then we've got the result. So kind of three main sections of this passage. The problem, the bad news that the good news of the gospel must address, followed by God's solution to this bad news, and then we conclude with the result. And along the way, we're going to be understanding, I think, more fully the nature of grace. All right, so let's begin. I'm going to reread some of these passages, or read some of these texts as we begin, but 2, uh, 1 through 3. Look back again here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here Paul lays out the problem. We hear talk about the gospel. The term gospel is another way of saying good news. Right? So the gospel is good news. Well, what's the bad news that the gospel is addressing? The bad news is contained here in 2, 1 through 3. We're dead. Human beings come into the world dead in trespasses and sins. The term dead or death is a catch-all term. It's used here and used elsewhere in Scripture to kind of describe the, the problem of sin, the, the problem that plagues humanity. There's some adverbs that follow after this. Like, what does it mean to be dead in trespasses and sins? Well, it means that we're following the patterns of this world. In other words, just whatever's going on in the world, the priorities of the world, the things that the world is about, we just follow those things. We just follow the patterns of the world. We're just doing what the world is doing. Some of those things aren't terrible. Some of those things are good. Some of those things are bad. But we are not being led by, in our, in our innate condition, we're not being led by God. We're being led by the patterns of this world. We're following the patterns of the world. We're following the tyrant king. Here, look what it says, that we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's a reference to, to the devil and to Satan. We looked, remember back into our uh, sermon series and, and some of the things we looked at in the Advent series of, of the, the, the adversary that comes in Genesis 3 to, to overthrow humanity and that sets himself up as a tyrant king 
This is the prince of the power of the air. And, and to be dead in sins means that we are not only following the patterns of the world, but we're also following after this tyrant king. We're under the thrall of Satan. And then we're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, just as we follow whatever the world kind of sets out as priorities, we follow whatever our bodies set out as priorities. And rather than shepherding our bodies into health, we allow our bodies to shepherd us into unhealth. And we just follow what the cravings of our bodies are. Bodies aren't bad, and the cravings of our bodies aren't bad. But when the cravings of the body become master, that is bad. So we're letting our bodies shepherd us rather than shepherding our bodies. And we're led by, when he says, I think, the desires of the body and the mind. I think he's talking here, Paul's talking about the mind is mere human understanding. We're making decisions about our lives and what our lives are about based upon our just mere human reasoning and understanding. So we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're following the patterns of the world. We're under the thrall of the tyrant king. We're following after the passions of our body. But Paul's indictment against humanity gets even worse. So what is the bad news, right? It gets even worse because quite apart from our sinful actions, Paul says in verse 3, we are by nature already objects of God's judgment. We are by nature already objects of God's judgment. This is the default setting. This is, this is pretty bad news, I just have to say. So if you were coming this morning for a happy pick-me-up to begin the year, it, it'll get there, but like it starts pretty bad. We are by nature already objects of God's judgment. To be by nature is just another way of saying that of what we are in our innate self, right? What it means now on this side of Eden, on this side of sin, what it means now for us to be human beings, we step into this world already corrupted by sin and under the judgment of God. Have you ever noted, uh, for those of you that have children, have you ever noted that you don't have to teach children to be bad? Like, they've got that, right? We come into the world with that part aced. You have to teach children how to be good. You have to teach children how, how to overcome their innate tendencies and nature. There is something, the Bible says, that is bent and broken within us. We're like a glitchy software program. Or as Martin Luther, who was the famous reformer, Protestant reformer, he famously described uh, the human condition as incurvatus and say, famously, no doubt you all have heard <laughs> that Latin expression. It means we are curved in on ourselves. You think about like, what is the human condition innately? We are curved in on ourselves, right? God created us to extend ourselves in love to the other. And our, our love goes out and it just comes back in on ourselves. And if you want to sum up like what it means probably to be dead in sins, it means that we're just living for ourselves. That the will is just curved back in on ourselves. We are innately oriented towards ourselves rather than love. And the problem of sin, here's, here's where it gets really damning. The problem of sin isn't merely that we've done some wrong things. The problem of sin is that we've become wrong. 
Again, the primary problem of sin isn't that we've broken some of God's rules, but that we've become broken. This is why death is the primary term used here and then elsewhere in Scripture to describe the problem of sin that Jesus comes to solve. All right? it's, it's, it's a condition that has befallen us. Our fundamental problem is not merely our corrupt actions, but our corrupt condition. Indeed, the reason that we have corrupt actions is because we are by nature corrupt. We're born into death. We are cast out as orphans into the alleyway of sin and death, even as we enter the world. Now, this isn't to say that all of us are as bad as we could possibly be. I dare say that probably none of us in this room are as bad as we possibly could be, thank God. And indeed, there are and were many virtuous, by human accounting, non-Christians outside the church. This is not to say that like everyone in the world, us included, and those outside of the church are like, like the, old, the orcs in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, right? We're not as bad as we possibly could be, but the seeds of death and sin and corruption and self-centeredness are present in all of us from our birth. They are inherent to our humanity. And the way that the Bible puts this together is that it's this sin, this corruption, it's like a malignant cancer. And left unchecked, the death that lives in us will drive us on towards the consummation of total and irreversible death. It is a terminal disease, sin. This is the reality that we have to come to terms with as we think about what the problem that Jesus has come to solve. So we have a terminal disease called sin. Perhaps some of us here this morning have underestimated the depth of our problem. Have you fully come to grips with what God says about your innate condition? Because invariably, repentance is just going to skim the surface of our lives we don't come to terms with what we are truly repenting of. We are not just called to repent of our sinful actions, as though our sin was something outside of us, as though our sin was kind of like on a rap sheet that we could hold at arm's length in our hands and say, well, I'm just going to repent of that. Sorry, sorry about that. We're not just called to repent of our sinful actions. We're, we're called to repent of our sinful selves, right? The sin doesn't lie outside of us on a rap sheet. The sin lies inside of us, corrupting us and driving us to curved wills back in on ourselves. Perhaps some of you here this morning need to come to terms in a fresh way with the brokenness inside of you. You need to stop making excuses and you need to, to stare unflinchingly into the mirror of God's word and own the fact that you are broken. We come into the world death-pocked, all of us. And the first step to new life is to admit the gravity of our situation. The situation is grave, but the gospel is even better. So we move to verses 4 through 9. Look here. So things are bad, right? 2, 1 through 3. And if we just stopped right there, it would be very despairing. But we get into verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Given that death and brokenness is the fundamental problem that plagues humanity, look what God does as a means of deliverance. He makes us alive and he raises us up with Christ, which of course is exactly what we would expect given that our problem is death and brokenness. God's redemptive grace in Christ doesn't just settle the score with respect to our sinful actions. It doesn't just clear off the rap sheet. It goes deeper to the very heart of our problem, our sinful condition. And here's where I think contemporary evangelical accounts of the gospel can lose their way a little bit or become a bit truncated. Many contemporary articulations of the gospel tend to, not always, but tend to suggest that our primary problem is our sinful behavior. As though the primary dilemma of sin is that we've done some things wrong. Now, our sinful actions, these are a problem to be sure, but, but what if our most fundamental problem is not our behavior, but the brokenness that gives rise to our behavior, what then? Right? God's forgiveness is great for wrong actions and is needed for wrong actions, but it doesn't get to the root of the issue. If you conceive of God's grace in your life as exclusively, or perhaps even primarily, forgiveness of sins, you're missing the heart of what the gospel actually is doing. Imagine that you had a 10-year-old child and you told this child not to play in the street. And there you are working in the house and you hear screeching of tires and you run outside to find your child sitting on the curb with a broken leg because they've been hit by the car. And so you say to your child, I told you not to play in the street. What were you thinking? And he says to you, of course, it would be a hymn that we'd play in the street. So he says to you, he says to you, uh, I'm so sorry, Dad. I'm so sorry, Mom. I, I'm so sorry I disobeyed you. And you said, well, you know, boys will be boys. It's okay, son. I forgive you. Listen, dinner's at five. Come on in when you're done playing. Right? Because the sinful action, the disobedience of the child has led now to a broken condition. And as a parent, you can't address the fullness of that problem simply through forgiveness. You can't merely say, it's okay, I forgive you, we're all good now, and then leave the child in the same condition that has been the result of their sinful action. It's the same thing that's happened in sin with us and our relationship with God, is that God has given us a, a way of life, the way of love, you could put it in these terms, we've chosen the way of self, and we have broken and corrupted ourselves. And if God were just to show up into our lives and say, I forgive you, where would that leave us? Still broken and corrupt. This is why the resurrection is the central aspect and message of the gospel. The apostles didn't cross the breadth of the Roman Empire proclaiming merely that Jesus died on a cross. Jesus' death is salvific and it's powerful and it's meaningful, but only because he rose from the dead. Thousands of people died each year on Roman crosses. 
There was nothing unique about Jesus dying on a Roman cross as the central aspect of the gospel message. And if you go back and you read the book of Acts, which contains the proclamations of the gospel as contained by the apostles, what they preached most earnestly was that this one whom God had sent, God had raised from the dead. That was the new and noteworthy thing that the apostles were proclaiming. The unique message of the gospel has always been that God raised Jesus from the dead and that when we place our faith in him, we too have the hope of resurrection from the dead and new life. We receive this gift spiritually now of new life through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we look forward to the day the bodily resurrection when Jesus returns and takes us to himself. Jesus in his death on the cross absorbed humanity's punishment. What was humanity's punishment? It was death. He absorbed our punishment. But if Jesus had only died, we would still be lost. The Apostle Paul elsewhere says we would still be in our sins if Jesus had just merely absorbed our punishment and died. He didn't just absorb humanity's punishment, he overcame it. He triumphed over the grave and rose to new life, raising us up with him into that same new life. Amen? Amen. Christians are more than just forgiven. You ever seen that bumper sticker? Perhaps you've heard the expression, but I've seen it on bumper stickers. Christians aren't perfect, which is true. Just forgiven, which is not true. Right? Christians aren't perfect. That's true. We haven't got to that resurrecting power of Jesus at his return when he raises us incorruptible and imperishable. That hasn't reached its zenith yet in our lives. We're not perfect, right? But, but we're not just forgiven. There's that whole raised up with Christ and made alive and born again and new creatures, like all of that aspect, right? So if you're driving down the road and you see someone with that bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven, pull up alongside of them and shake your fist at them. Say, get that off your car. No, don't do that. Don't do that. That would... But in any case, don't put that bumper sticker on your car. That's the point, right? Christians aren't perfect, right? But we're not just forgiven. All right, so our problem is death. It's dead in sins. It's this condition, this sinful condition that plagues us. And Jesus comes to give us new life, right? Not to, to only forgive us of our sins. And that's a beautiful and meaningful gift. But, but even more than that, to go right to the heart of why it is that we're sinning in the first place. And to begin this renovative work in making us a new life. So if our problem is death and God's salvation is new life, then inevitably the result of God's grace in our life will be signs of new life. So this brings us to our third movement of this text. The result, the problem, God's solution, and now the result. Created for good works, 2, 8 through 10. So for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is the result of God making us alive with Christ? What does that mean? It means that we become the workmanship of God. We become the workmanship or the craft, the handiwork of God, whereby he begins the sure work of restoring to us what human beings were meant all along to be. 
So God, by his own hand and through his own power, creates humanity. Humanity falls into sin. And in Christ, God picks us back up and begins to remake us into the kind of people that he intended us to be. That inward curved will begins to get straightened out. Right? And we begin to learn how to love others. And we begin to learn how to live in obedience to God. This is what it means, then, to be saved by grace in Ephesians 2.8. It's a rather famous passage if you've been around the church long enough. This might be one of the passages that you've committed to scripture memory is, for by grace we've been saved through faith. What does it mean to be saved in this context? It means to be born again. It means to be given new life. It means to be raised up with Christ. It doesn't just mean to be forgiven. It does mean that. It certainly means that, but it means more than that. It means to be raised up with Christ. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And not only is God the one who makes us alive to begin with, but he's the one who continues to work in us through, so that we bear this new life and this new life bears fruit. God's grace then is transformative. It is a power that pervades our lives and changes us. When God places his grace upon us, it begins this work of redemption. And what's more, here's the tremendously good news, is that God is the one who heals us and restores us. God is the one whose agency and power produces in and through us the good works that emerge out of salvation. We're not saved by our own good works because we can't fix ourselves. But we're saved unto good works because God puts his power inside of us and begins to transform us so that these works, that these works of love, we could say, that God wants us to be about begin to emerge in our lives because of his power. If we reduce salvation solely to the forgiveness of sins, we're going to be tempted, and here I see this, I think, frequently, we're going to be tempted to wrongly believe that any progress we make in our spiritual maturity will come primarily through our own effort. As though God's part is to forgive the rap sheet. But we remain basically like we were. we're. After all, we're just forgiven. So then when we're called to live holy lives, where does the power to live holy lives come from? Well, if all we conceive of grace being is simply the forgiveness of our rap sheet, then the power is going to have to come from somewhere inside of us. But if we conceive of grace properly as forgiveness of sins and new life, and then God calls us in Scripture to live a new life, where does this power come from? It comes from God's grace that he has already put into our lives. It's not simply God's part to forgive us and our part to make good on that forgiveness. It's God's part to forgive us, make us alive, and to nurture that life inside of us to produce fruit. One of my favorite quotes is from one of my favorite church fathers, Augustine, who prays, he said this, give what you command and then command what you will. In other words, tell me what you want me to do, but first you must give me the capacity to do it. Give what you command, command what you will. That's the essence of grace, is that God calls us to a, a way of life in Christ Jesus, but he first places within us through his grace the power to live in this way. Perhaps it's the case that some of you here today have underestimated the great worth of your salvation. 
You know your brokenness, but you think that all that God offers you or primarily what God offers you is forgiveness. Jesus, at one point in the Gospels, he said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. Speaking specifically of, in that context of physical healing, but the application would extend into our own spiritual renewal. According to our faith, it will be done to us. Perhaps you've underestimated God's redemptive work in your life, and you don't have the proper object of faith, the proper expectations. You believe God for too little, and that's exactly what you're getting, is too little. Perhaps today the Lord is calling you to raise the expectations of your faith to a higher level, to believe that God can and will continue to heal you and make you new. Perhaps there's some particular vexing area of your life that you have come to believe can never change, that it lies outside of God's redemptive grace. Renew your faith this morning in God's power to save. Perhaps there's some of you this morning that when you think about it, and you think about it critically and honestly, begins to dawn on you that actually, if you're honest, you really only wanted God's forgiveness. You didn't really want that whole power transforming your life thing, because that's complicated. You'd much prefer just to go your own way and have the rap sheet cleared. You'd rather just claim the name of Christ, live your own life, but be assured that your sins were forgiven. Here's a warning if you're in that spot this morning. Those gifts go together. The one that would claim the forgiveness of Christ must also claim the grace and power of Christ to transform you into the kind of person who increasingly doesn't need forgiveness. And if you only want forgiveness and you don't want transformation, you're not getting either. Because God's grace comes as a package. So perhaps some of you this morning need to get real about your relationship with God. And you need to decide whether or not you really want salvation in your life. I can assure you that God's transforming power in your life, however much it complicates it, and it does complicate our lives, makes it better. He gives us life in replacement of our death. We're not going to be perfect. That's true. That is true. But we are not just forgiven. Don't settle for a just forgiven gospel. So as a family of God, as Calvary Memorial Church, together, raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places as a congregation that has been given the gift of the Holy Spirit as a deposit and a guarantee. Together, we need to believe and hope for great things from God. Together, we need to believe God for and pray for marriages healed, sins overcome, relationships restored, inward curved souls turned outward once again in love. And do you see how this understanding, this fully orbed understanding of grace intersects with our mission of proclaiming the good news of the gospel? What are we proclaiming when we proclaim the gospel? 
When we go out to make disciples of Jesus, when we go out to, to make disciples, to follow in Jesus' command, what are, we, what are we turning people into? What are we proclaiming? Are we proclaiming only that Jesus died? Yes, we're proclaiming that, but more so than that, that he rose from the dead and that through faith in him, he can and does make all things new. That he holds in his hands forgiveness of sins and even better, he holds in his hands new life. I'm going to close by reading from the Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius. He wrote this in the fourth century as Christianity was beginning to emerge and really begin to take hold in the Greco-Roman world. And he was reflecting back on a couple hundred years of church history and how, how the, the message of the gospel was beginning to emerge in powerful ways throughout the empire. And I think this captures the essence of how we need to understand the gospel. And so I close with this. This is what he writes. For now that the, Spirit, now that the Savior works so great things among men and day by day is invisibly persuading so great a multitude from every side both from them that dwell in Greece and in foreign lands, to come over to his faith and all to obey his teaching. Will anyone still hold his mind in doubt whether a resurrection has been accomplished by the Savior and whether Christ is alive or rather is himself the life? Is it like a dead man to be pricking the consciences of men so that they deny their hereditary laws and bow before the teachings of Christ? Or how, if he is no longer active, for if he were dead, he would be no longer active, does he stay from their activity, those who are active and alive, so that the adulterer no longer commits adultery, and the murderer murders no more, nor is the inflictor of wrong any longer grasping, and the profane is henceforth religious? Or how, if he has not risen but is dead, does he drive away and pursue and cast down those false gods said by the unbelievers to be alive and the demons they worship? For where Christ is named and his faith, there all idolatry is deposed and all imposture of evil spirits is exposed. And any spirit that is unable to endure even the name, nay, even on barely hearing it, flies and disappears. But this work is not that of one dead, but of one that lives. Amen? Father, thank you that you have given us Jesus who is the living power of life in our lives to make us alive in him. We confess that we need the forgiveness of sins, Lord. We acknowledge that we need it. We know that we have failed and no doubt will continue to fail, but even more profoundly than we need forgiveness of sins, we need new life. God, thank you that you've given us new life in Christ. May we believe you for it. May we not settle for a forgiveness-only gospel, but may we lay hold of the full power, the, the double cure, cleansed from sin and made pure, Lord. We pray that this would be the power of you in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.